to Pop the Question, a podcast that exists at the intersection of pop culture and academia. We sit down and talk about our favorite stuff through the lenses of what we do and who we are. From Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University, Dr. Melinda Lewis here. I'm your host. Coming up, we have a special Pop the Question for you. This episode highlights a previously recorded discussion in partnership with the Barnes Foundation here in Philadelphia. This was also a co-production between our ongoing discussion series, Pannoni Panels, and our broadcast TV series, The Civil Discourse, hosted by Pannoni Honors College Dean Paula Moretz-Cohen. In this episode, when great artists behave badly, Tony Award-winning dancer and choreographer Bill T. Jones and a panel of esteemed experts take on the topic of controversial artists and popular culture, and how, if we can and should, we separate the art from the artists in case of toxic, immoral, or even criminal behavior. It has been edited for time and clarity. We have a group of panelists here with us today who are well-suited to address this topic. And I'll briefly introduce them and then set our discussion going. First, Bill T. Jones. He's a MacArthur and Tony Award-winning dancer, choreographer, and visual artist, and director of the experimental dance organization, New York Live Arts, and of the Bill T. Jones Arnie Zane Dance Company. He holds the special distinction of having once been body painted by Keith Haring. Aruna D'Souza is an art critic, commentator, writer, and editor of books on the subject of art, race, and gender. Her most recent book, Whitewalling Art, Race, and Protest in Three Acts, was named one of the best books of 2018 by the New York Times. Eric Hatala Mathis is an associate professor of philosophy and director of the Frost Center for the Environment at Wellesley College. His work is devoted to the ethics, politics, and aesthetics of cultural heritage, art, and the environment. He's completing a book entitled Drawing the Line, What to Do with the Work of Immoral Artists from Museums to the Movies. And finally, Martha Lucy is Deputy Director for Research, Interpretation, and Education at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia. She's a historian of 19th and 20th century European art and visual culture, and an expert on the Impressionists and on Pierre-Auguste Renoir in particular. So let's begin with the question of how we should respond to the malfeasance of great artists. For example, Edgar Degas' anti-Semitism, Picasso's vile treatment of women, Bertolt Brecht's enthusiasm for Stalin, Philip Johnson's racism. When such facts come to light about artists, do you think we're obligated to take them into account in our evaluation of their art? What I think what we can't do is antecedently, right from the beginning, just artificially try to cordon off the artist from the artwork. We need to be open to the possibility that the lives of artists have relevance to our interpretation of their work. And I think there's ultimately nothing that puzzling about this, right? So while there's of course controversy about what kinds of contextual features are relevant to aesthetic interpretation of work. There are all kinds of features of the lives of artists that we often take into account when thinking about art interpretation, when they lived, the political climate they were working in, geographic context, et cetera. So I think it's arbitrary to just say, well, you know, the moral lives of artists, that couldn't possibly be relevant to our interpretation. I do think though that it's incumbent upon us to explain why in a particular case, 
the moral lives of artists are relevant to interpreting particular works of art. Let me push back a little on that and ask somebody else on the panel, if you think necessarily, and this moves a little bit against Eric's point, that there would be the imprint of, say, Degas' anti-Semitism somewhere in the art itself. That by necessity, given that's in the fabric of the character of the artist, it shows itself in the art. I'll jump in here and just say that the artists that we see in museums aren't there because they were good people or bad people. They were there because museums tend to confer ideas of genius on people who look a certain way, who have a certain gender, who perform their gender in certain ways. And so already all sorts of things have gone into the determination of artistic greatness beyond the idea of aesthetics. Those judgments have already been made. And so I think that we've already taken into account some very basic things about the artist's life uh, when we've decided who we're looking at in the first place. So let me ask, and I guess I will go to Martha with this one, a museum making an evaluation of its collection in light of what you say, Aruna and Eric, do you think there should be this sort of evaluation as we do? I mean, we evaluate a legal provenance of works now, which wasn't done in the past, and that's been fairly recent. Should there be a board of evaluation as to the moral life of the artist according to certain standards and so forth as to whether that art is exhibited? I, do, I don't know how to answer this question when it comes to living artists, but when it comes to dead artists, I wouldn't want to go through the Met's collection or through the Barnes's collection and start kind of taking things off of the wall based on whether that artist had done something immoral in the past. I would not want to do it and it's not just because there would be practically nothing left to look at. But it's also because I think then that we're losing an opportunity to talk about these things. But I think that the responsibility of museums now and the way that a lot of museum industry people are thinking is that it's really about education. So if it's Degas anti-Semitism, whether it's just something that you know about him as an artist or even if it's showing up in the work itself, which it, it does, I think that we need to talk about that and we need to know that that was part of history. I'm not sure if I'm on the right panel. Uh, <laughs> no, no, uh, the, the paradigm of museums is a problematic one for me to get into, but I'll do my best. I think I'm going to try to, my remarks are about artists. I thought that the title of this was a bit misplaced because what my experience would be, we should have another panel that says, when institutions, critics, collectors, tastemakers behave badly. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and then that's the next thing I will say is some basic pronouncements about art. Art should be dangerous. It should not be easily digested. Now, this is a, a Black man, a Black gay man speaking, and I know that I can be offended, but I think that you really have to separate the work from the person. Now, we want artists there because they're doing something, an existential gesture of pushing back against the absurdity of life, and they make, they leave artifacts. And those artifacts are oftentimes a lot to take in their time. And some of them fall with time and some of them grow with time. So for us to put guardrails up, separate them out. Some things are against the law, period. If you're abusing a child, that's against the law. Let the law take care of that. And if you're abusing- But, but, not, but not censor the art of that person. No, of course not. Do you think as an artist, 
versus a critic? Because I think when you said you're on the wrong panel, I'm wondering if there's been an age old tension between critic and artist, do you feel that still in our yes. culture? Yes, there's art, there's something that at the art that I'm talking of is at a level that I'd say it's something next to someone's spiritual understanding of being alive. No, I, I really think art should be dangerous. It should not decorate. And I'm talking as a living artist. So I want to jump in because I think that Bill, who's I'm just a huge fan of your work and your career, but I want to talk, I want to change the terms a little bit because I, I do think that art should be dangerous. And I'm not sure that often we are talking about artists who are making dangerous art when we're talking about this question, right? So that I'm not sure that in all cases that what we're ta often talking about when people get riled up about artists behaving badly are artists who have personally acted in ways that are offensive. In your case, the work was dangerous and uncomfortable for people. And that was the problem. For certain people. For certain people. For certain people. Okay, for ex I'm going to give you an example that I think is really mm -hmm. clear mm -hmm. because, and that speaks as well to Martha's comment about um, the necessary conversations. So I went to the National Portrait Gallery after the Kehenda Wiley portrait of Barack Obama was installed there. And as I was walking around that floor of the National Portrait Gallery, I look over and there's Chuck Close's portrait of Bill Clinton. Chuck Close is an artist who was accused of sexual harassment and abuse of a number of women. And the National Portrait Gallery decided in the context of the sort of first flush of the Me Too movement that his retrospective should be canceled. So there was a controversy, do we cancel retrospectives? Do we only give retrospectives to decent people? All of that kind of stuff. I don't think anyone would argue, no one that I know would argue that Chuck Close is making the most cutting edge, dangerous, thought provoking work on the contemporary scene by a long shot. But what was most interesting to me is the wall label for this picture, because the wall label for this picture, which as Martha said, fine, keep it on the wall and have the difficult conversations. The wall label for this picture talked extensively about Bill Clinton's various sexual scandals and did not mention the artists own sexual scandals, right? So in, in that sense, my problem is not that uh, we need to take all the work down. My problem is the apparatus, which doesn't want to actually have the conversations that need to be put forward. In Bill's case, that as, as he points out, it's a very different situation of an artist who is being put on the spot because of the power of a single art critic, where that turns into a kind of sort of conservative position being used as, as an aesthetic standard. And that's problematic. If people don't know about the controversy, the victim art controversy, it was a work that I made in the 90s. Uh, I had made a work called Last Supper at Uncle Tom's Cabin, The Promised Land, which was a work taking on the issues of race before it became a pop issue, right? And then uh, that also blew up. A lot of people were upset about that. 
Last Supper at Uncle Tom's Cabin featuring 52 handsome nudes. And the piece ended with a stage of um, anywhere between 52 to 60 plus people of all shapes and sizes and ages, naked, bathed in a golden light and singing like children. Okay, we got over that. And then I decided I want to make a work that was completely you could not say it was divisive along any lines. In other words, we're all born, we grow, and some of us reproduce, and then we die. Mortality. I went around and I did survival workshops with, in about 35 communities uh, with people who were or had been dealing with life-threatening illness. But this particular critic said she had obviously heard or something, and she said, this, uh, there's, it's impossible for her to review work that's for, about people she feels sorry for. And it was unfair of, I guess, me to make it and the Brooklyn Academy of Music wherever to present it because it's there to make you feel bad. And therefore, you should not go. Hmm. Don't go see this work. It's just there to make you feel bad. So how we got here, and uh, Aruna, I'm trying to make that important distinction you make between what is the object and who made it? What's the story behind it? I still don't know why I, if the national still feels it's important to put a label on a work by Chuck Close or any representation of Bill Clinton. Does the work stand? Is that different from putting a label on a statue? to give context to it, where the sin is a historical sin. And I was going to ask Eric, because he is an environmentalist as well as a critic of art, about the statue in front of the Museum of Natural History that is going to be taken down, although many people feel it should have a label explaining it, that shows Teddy Roosevelt on a horse a Native American and an African on either side. But uh, do you have thoughts about this? Now, I realize I'm moving away from artists behaving badly to history behaving badly and therefore impinging on the artist. How much does a work of art like this, which I think is a masterful work of sculpture, is it too offensive to stand or to stand there? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on in that question. I mean, I think when it comes to public artwork in particular and monuments that have a particular function, which is to, to honor, I think it's really important that we think carefully about the, the public meaning of those sculptures and the messages they might send. So, you know, quite apart from anything uh, involving Teddy Roosevelt, I think a lot of people have convincingly argued that this statue in particular embodies certain forms of colonialism and racism and then projects those as the public face of the Museum of Natural History. So I think that, you know, there are a lot of good reasons to remove this particular sculpture. So I think that, you know, context can matter. Uh, I think that the way in which we provide context about the lives of artists and the potential relevance too of the lives of artists to interpretation of their work within a museum context can be quite different from how we would do that. Well, I was wondering, isn't there another way that they're taking some of these sculptures and putting them in their own preserved location. Therefore, we go there because we want to see things that are troublesome historically. 
-hmm. Now that's where I think it should be. But I do think that it has, it's, it says something about history as Eric says, and therefore it stills a sense of conversation in us. I wouldn't destroy I, it. I agree with that too. I do not think that we should, should get rid of it because it is part of our history and we need to acknowledge that, but context is everything in this case. Martha's expertise is in Renoir and in, in uh, Impressionist painting. I think the Barnes has one of the largest collections of Renoirs in the world. And he has been targeted as the embodiment of the male gaze. And in ma many critics have accused him of, of, of painting pornography. And I want to know what Martha has to say to that. Renoir is the poster boy for the for the male gaze when it comes to you know modern European art. You know, if the male gaze is about the power dynamic that's sort of embedded in in the act of looking, and it's a sort of sexualized looking where the woman is the object, she is sort of presented as as kind of mindless. Um, as if she's unaware that she's being painted. So there's this kind of voyeuristic element. There's the sort of fleshed cheeks. But I like studying it because it, it's fascinating to me. And I want to understand the context that it's coming out of. And of course, wouldn't, wouldn't Baltus have been a better example? Mm. I, you know, Bill, I was thinking the exact same thing in the sense that because, as Martha says, he's such a typical example, his work looks like so much other art historical work, not in factor or even in composition, but just in terms of his own position and relation mm -hmm. to his model and everything like that. Whereas Baltus is so much weirder <laughs> because so, of so the... Wait a second. So wait a second. You're saying these are gradations of... A pornographic gaze because this whole history of art is full of the female nude, right? Yeah, Therefore, it is. <laughs> yes. It, I mean, the, the history of art is full of the female nude. It's full of sexist artists because we live in patriarchy. That's going to be a given. And, you know, it's full of racist artists because we live in racist patriarchy. And those things are all givens. I mean, if people are finding Renoir pornographic, I would say that they have a really tame idea of what pornography is. I agree with you. I think it's pretty pornographic. That doesn't mean that it's not also well, I, I what's so interesting is that around the time that the Me Too movement sort of gained momentum and around the time that Harvey Weinstein was being brought to to task about his own crimes, which were genuine crimes. A group of museum members at the Met started a petition around the Baltus painting that the Metropolitan Museum in New York had. And people freaked out and there was a big article in the New York Times about Me Too culture and is it going to mean that we take all the art off the walls and what kind of litmus test and everything like that. And so I went to look I mean, it's a fantastic article if anyone wants to search it because museum directors were seriously losing their heads over the idea that you would do anything in relation to this Baltus. And they literally only asked that an, a line be added again to the wall label saying to contemporary viewers, this painting may strike you as disturbing because of this sexual content. That's it. That's, that's what they were asking for. And people lost their minds. And so for me, it's like, well, if museum directors and curators aren't going to 
do their job by helping us contextualize what we're looking at, then they shouldn't get to play with their toys anymore. So if you can't deal with a Baltus responsibly, then yeah, don't put it up on the wall. If you yeah. want to- Aruna, Aruna, did you think that was enough? Was that enough to put that tag for you? As a woman and a, a, to, a to me, I'm a I'm a historian. If I'm I'm trained as an art historian, if I was going to decide that people weren't worth studying or looking at based on their racism or or misogyny or whatever, mm -hmm. I would not have anything to study. But, <laughs> I mean, and you know, Martha says the same thing about museum collections. Yeah. I would not have anything to study, but. I will say now that I'm an art critic and not an art historian, I make choices about who I pay attention to and who I don't. Mm -hmm. I feel no need to review the, whatever the artistic equivalent of Woody Allen is, right? <laughs> I have no, I feel no need to review that. It doesn't matter if their art is good or bad or indifferent. It, I have a choice of looking in a different direction. It's your mom. I have a question about that podcast you do. Are you on the Instagram or the Twitter or the Facebook? You know, like if I have an idea for a podcast, how do I get in touch with you? Love you. Bye. Sup, mom? Uh, yeah. So you can find us on all those things, actually. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just go to PopQuestPod on any one of those and follow. If you want to send us ideas, you can either go over to our website and leave us a message at PopQ Podcast, or you can get us directly at PopQ at Drexel.edu. You can actually find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, I can help set it up when I get home, but then you have to promise me to rate and review. All right. Love you. Bye. But I do want to get us back to a point that Bill made about the artist as a dangerous person is the creative mind by mm -hmm. definition bound to break boundaries to be extremely sensitive and fragile in certain ways and therefore susceptible to elements that could be very illuminating on the one hand but also offensive on the other and and i think it's a very hard thing to to tease apart and there are also fads, it seems to me, as to what may be acceptable as dangerous and what might not be acceptable as dangerous. And, and I think we should just be aware of that. I'm just going to quickly go through a couple of names. And I don't necessarily, because I do want us to open to questions, but I want your maybe a quick thought on this. In recent years, artists are accused of sexual and domestic abuse crimes with variable effects on their reputation. Michael Jackson was presumably sexually involved with a minor, but so was Elvis. James Levine was predatory, but so was Frank Sinatra. Ike Turner was a domestic abuser, but so was John Lennon. Are we selective based on a variety of factors, which would include the kind and degree of wrongdoing, but also the race and the historical moment and the medium in which this happens? And I'll start with Martha, because as somebody who's deeply into a museum culture, what your thoughts are. I'm going to punt on this and say that I think the, the best thing that I have read on this topic is Claire Dieterer's article or essay, What Do You Do with the Art of Monstrous Men? Yeah. 
It's so good. It was in the Paris Review. If you haven't read it, Google it because it's beautiful. And she grapples with these questions and she loves Woody Allen and she hates what he did, but she loves him and she doesn't want to give up his art. Yeah. And it's just so well done. Uh, Eric. Yeah, so I mean, there's, there's a lot going on here, but w- one thing I think that, that we should say is that we shouldn't adopt, I think, this position where we act as if because somebody makes great art, what they do in their personal lives, especially when what they do is serial abuse, just doesn't matter, as if it's somehow worth it that we get this art in exchange for their abuse, right? It's not worth it to their victims. And so I don't think that, you know, this needs to lead to censorship. And I think we've all sort of been in agreement about that. I do think it needs to lead to arts institutions taking more responsibility when they're working with artists. If they're hearing multiple accusations that an artist that they're working with is an abuser, just like in any other professional context, they should take steps, right? They should not continue to work with that person and and not act as if the fact that they're, you know, a genius makes it okay. I find it regrettable that we, and my respect for all of my colleagues here, but uh, that we've stayed with the more conventional arts and art museums. When we open up what we mean by art in the Instagram world and in the TikTok world, and there's a generation of people who are being, they've, they've grown up with pornography. They've seen violence since they were very young. There is white supremacists. Now works are gonna be coming out of that and works are coming out of that. So I want to get ahead of it and give them as wide a berth as possible, as long as they're, well, I won't say as long as, because I don't know, it's not my job to say, as long as they're not doing human sacrifice or what have you. But we have not really been able to really deal with the uh, communication devices of our era. uh, And that is that little thing where instantaneous images can come up and start quite beautiful, quite arresting and dubious. But Bill, my position is, I want to get those old white men abusers out of the mm-hmm. exhibition queues and out of the out of the wall space to make room for young people who are actually making disturbing and thought-provoking work that is actually doing the work to prompt conversations that allow change to happen. For me, that's precisely why I don't want to see another Chuck Close show. And frankly, Martha will kill me. I, I think that we could go for a few years without a Picasso show or without a Renoir show. Like I like it's precisely because we've got this limited space, limited resources for all of this stuff. I want to give room for those people who have lived, as you said, with all of these things and are now trying to make sense of it. I'm not sure if I understand you. What about technique? What about innovation, what about style, all of those things which some of those old white guys have really been leading us about how you handle paint, how you look at forms. Do you give any points off? I mean, do you give me, for people being able to be the formal contributions, even if it's an offensive painting, do you give them points off? Bill, that's a great question for us to now open to our audience. (laughs) Okay. I see a question here. So if you don't identify how the artist's bad character or behavior is manifested in his art and we condemn the art because of the bad behavior, how do we deal with the artist influenced by the bad artist? For example, Richard Wagner's music influenced many visual and literary artists. If we don't know what it 
is about his music that expresses or embodies his raging anti-Semitism, how do we evaluate the art of his followers? In order to make those kinds of assessments, you have to really get to know the work very well. You have to know why an artist was looking or listening to Wagner and what they got out of Wagner. And artists like Trenton Doyle Hancock, a sort of young-ish African-American artist who is doing amazing work that addresses histories of racism and anti-Blackness precisely by looking at artists who were themselves creating racist imagery. Kara Walker is another uh, person. Yeah, can we talk about Kara for a moment? Is it because somebody, <laughs> yeah. I love Ella Carroll's work, but somebody, and I imagine some powerful white person, has been able to see past the horror of what she's doing and say, ah, this is a modern artist who is scraping her, her consciousness over the, the, the prongs of history. And we have to look at it. Matter of fact, when we're uncomfortable, it's a good thing. But that's the work, right? That's the work that curators and museums and critics and all of us in the apparatus need to be paying attention to and doing that work. Because I don't think that that's necessarily the artist's work. Anyways, next I, question, please. I agree with you, Bill, on that. Um, <laughs> this is a question, I believe it's from Aaron. I'm reading. I wanted to follow up on something Eric Mathis said. He argued that the artist's lives are indeed relevant to how we interpret their work. I agree with that. But what bearing does personal behavior and moral attitude have on how we evaluate their art? Meaning is one thing in this debate, but what about quality? And I think actually that speaks a little bit to something Bill said about technique, maybe. The issue of quality, can quality be taken apart from the artwork as a whole and meaning? And quality and innovation, I was saying. Yeah. So mm -hmm. Eric, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to think about artistic quality, but I mean, one way, just one, right, in which we might evaluate art has to do whether with whether it achieves its own aims, right? If it's trying to elicit a certain reaction from the audience, but there are factors about the life of the artist that not just happen to prevent people from having that reaction, but make it the case that we have like a moral reason not to have the response that the artist is going after, then I think that can plausibly get in the way of the art succeeding on its own terms. So just to give you know, in a, a sort of a pop example, take Aaliyah's song, Agent Nothing But a Number, which was performed when she was 15 years old, written for her by R. Kelly, who she was secretly married to. So that context changes the meaning of that song, right? The song's trying to be sexy, but there's a really plausible interpretation in which it fails to be sexy because of that context. Whereas if you change the context, maybe the song was written by J-Lo for her much younger boyfriend, <laughs> then it's doing something totally different, yeah. right? It's bucking sexist double standards. Obviously not every artist and artwork is gonna have a, a context in which they relate to each other in this way. But what I think is we need to be open to the possibility that these relationships exist and think, think carefully about them. And that's why I agree with everybody that's so important to, to have the art available because there's important interpretive work with moral and aesthetic consequences for us to do. Thank you, Eric. There's another question here. I'm gonna reduce it to the last line. And I think this is an interesting point that we haven't addressed. Should we let the art market handle any issues that come to light about an artist? No. <laughs> Absolutely. Can I be rude and say that I think that that 
discussion is going to lead us into a blind alley that we don't have time to deal with. Right. I have a related question for you here, which is Bill T. Jones. It is beautiful how you bring up the idea of spirituality being alive as artists. I know the art and spirituality are interlinked, but how do you tackle things from the material world into your art while still connecting to the higher self? and having these conversations about race, colonialism, and imperialism. Uh, how do you have meaning in your life? My work was a crazy guy trying to figure out how to find form and meaning that it moved him. <laughs> and it just so happens that my poetry had to do with being an African-American, a homosexual person. Uh, the AIDS crisis came along. That's how you do it. So um, there is no, there is no, no rule book. Art should be dangerous, and you have got to all be primary alchemists, alchemists holding up a bowl of base material and hoping that a cosmic ray comes along and turns it into a precious metal. I do not believe for one second that it's some magic alchemy. Okay, can I ask Martha a question that's coming from Amanda? Amanda wants to know your thoughts on Gauguin. Oh boy. <laughs> he sort of falls in the same category for me as Renoir does. Um, I think he's more problematic, but I would not suggest that we stop looking at his work because I think that the way that Gauguin is being talked about now is, is a lot better than the way that Gauguin used to be talked about, which was nobody talked about um, the sort of colonial history that, that his works are coming out of. It was just sort of a discussion about form. I think that the way that the National Gallery in London, they did a Gauguin portraits exhibition of last year, um, and it was also in Canada. I th think that the way that they dealt with it, with his work was, was, the, was right. They explicitly said he took up with his, here's, this is a portrait of his 13 year old mistress. They didn't hide that information. They didn't not show the work. They included that information and sort of let the, the audience deal with that information. I am a big fan of his. The paintings are beautiful. They are. And this is a person of color looking at a white man draw half-naked women of color. And yet I felt the poetry of it. I think that he's fighting a battle for us on another front. I don't, is it possible for you to really be outside of the mores of your era? Very few of us are, right? And I don't want to give any sort of uh, racist uh, or past from the history, but I think those paintings for me they do cut through something which is called, which is a spiritual fog that I have around form, beauty, and history. I'm not interested in art without knowing its history. I'm either going to be looking at art in an uninformed way, in which case I can only see half of what's there, or I can understand the history, in which case all of those things come in and I can see fully. This conversation can almost never happen outside of the assumption of individual genius. We have so much investment as a culture in the idea of the individual genius. And as long as we're talking about genius, then we are always talking about mostly men, mostly white men, mostly straight white men. And we're always talking about then the idea of people who have enormous privilege in their everyday lives getting even further privilege because of their genius. And that is what 
drives me nuts. Yeah, I think Aruna's point about the, the problem with genius is that it justifies the canon. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. but I don't want, I don't want to not be able to say that that artists I don't I don't want to say that they're not geniuses the ones that I love now mm. doesn't genius though bring us back to quality I mean my teacher and Martha's teacher Linda Nochlin wrote the foundational text of feminist art history and it was called not because she believed it but because a man came up and challenged her at a lecture he said why have there been no great women artists and so she took wow. that question mm. and she said I could list the great women artists, but that would be a losing game because any name that I came up with, Artemisia Gentileschi, some guy in the audience would say, yeah, but compared to Caravaggio, right? And so what she said is our whole idea of genius and our whole idea of quality is wrapped up in conditions that have nothing to do with craft or nothing to do with technique, nothing to do with any markers of artistic, not nothing to do, but very little to do with those individual markers and everything to do with standards that are set by people who are not women. But the notion of genius, the notion of the singular genius who is producing work that's so great that you should just give them a pass on everything else is deeply ideological. My concern is until we actually start recognizing that talent can exist in the most unexpected places, then we are actually not looking at the art that might help us think our way out of this terrible world. That but Aruna, right? I don't, I don't want us to finish our discussion here, but uh, you know, the, the young are out of the gate with this already. Yeah. They, they, they don't buy that anymore. I mean, we are, the young have taken that and they are running with it and more power to them. Eric, I'm switching gears a little because there's a question for you. Do you think that there should be a personal responsibility on the part of a viewer or, a, or an audience member or a viewer in a museum to study what's behind an artist that one likes? In other words, you see a painting, you love the painting. Are you then obliged to go out and <laughs> should you be obliged to go out and study what's behind that painting? No, I don't think so. I mean, our, our consumers, people who are not in positions of like particular power with respect to the artists, they're just like somebody who goes to a museum. Uh, I think it's really up to you. I mean, I think that we can make sense of what you could gain from that kind of investigation, just like we can make a sense of what you gain from any other kind of like art historical investigation. There's a lot, there's a lot to find there, but I don't think it's an obligation anymore than I think it's an obligation to read the wall text when you go through a museum. There's lots to find there. There's lots that's enriching, but you can also go through a museum and just look at the art. Yeah, I guess then the question for Aruna here is, and for Martha, is it then the responsibility of the museum to create that background? And how do you, and for me personally, when I read a wall copy that tells me how to think about a work, it irritates me. But I suppose there's a difference between being told that this is beautiful or this is important or whatever, and being told some fact about the artist. And that's a hard balance. Would you agree, Martha? 
it's a really hard balance and it's something that uh, I mean we talk about all the time you know whether or not you're 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 bringing up these difficult issues just having text on the wall some people don't don't want that they just want to be with the art and, and looking at the art and I guess I would just argue that if you don't want to read it don't read it it's there if you want it I do read labels madly. I'm a black person who always feel like I have to understand the world of white people, which most museums are. And I am always trying to improve my mind and learn more about context and so on. For a lot of us, we were taught that that's the whole reason you go to art is because it's not science and it's not religion and it's not politics. It's something that you have to figure out. We're almost out of time. There is someone, Mimi, who said, and I just think it's a nice way to end perhaps, she says, I agree with Bill T. Jones in regards to Gauguin paintings being beautiful. I'm mm -hmm. not socializing with the guy. I'm reflecting on what the work <laughs> says. Why can't I just enjoy it and consider it separate from the artist? Which brings us full circle. So yeah, Runa. Anyone can look at whatever work they want and find meaning and find sustenance in whatever work they want. You have to individually decide what your boundaries are around that. Instead, people are so bound up with who they like is who they are. What they like is what they are. There becomes something where, where people are not willing to sort of deal with the, the nuance, the difficulty of knowing that bad people can produce beautiful things and I think, you know, people overreact a lot of times to suggestions that maybe we actually need to do more to contextualize something. And that's mm. well said, Arun. It's a good place to end. People's nostalgia is a powerful, powerful force. Mm. And how to get people to be comfortable enough to let go of some of those feelings of the past where they feel safe, so to speak, is part of what our education should be about. And yet it's a very hard thing. All right, well, thanks everybody. I, I want to thank you again for the generosity of your time and your, your thoughts. And thank you Barnes Foundation for partnering. I'm sure most of our audience has been to the Barnes. It's one, it's one of my favorite museums in the world. Yeah. I love it, yeah. That wraps up our panel discussion on when great artists behave badly. Thanks for joining us. In addition to Pop the Question, please check your local PBS broadcast listings for our TV series, The Civil Discourse, or subscribe on YouTube where you can find these full episodes and many other insightful guest discussions. Until next time, take care, everybody. Pop the Question was researched and hosted by Dr. Melinda Lewis. Our theme music and episodes are produced by Brian Kantorik with additional audio production by Noah Levine. All of this was done under the directorship of Erica Levy-Zellinger, the deanship of Dr. Paula Moranz-Cohen, and the Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. What are we talking about? Practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice. We're talking about practice.